Welcome back to the Drupal Easy Podcast. This is Season 16, Episode Number 4. My name is Mike Ganello, a.k.a. Ultimike, and in today's episode, I'll be talking with Kevin Quillen about a book he recently co-authored with Matt Blauman, Drupal 10 Development Cookbook. We'll also take a few minutes to talk about the OpenAI slash ChatGPT integration module that Kevin is a maintainer of. Before we get to all that, let me tell you about Drupal Easy's long-form Drupal training courses. Our beginner-focused Drupal career online is now in its 12th year, and we've graduated hundreds of students in that time frame. We think of the DCO as holistic Drupal training. Not only do we teach you Drupal, but also many of the best practice tools and skills related to being a successful professional Drupal developer. This class meets twice a week for 12 weeks starting on February 12th. You can learn more at drupaleasy.com DCO. Our newest long-form Drupal training course is called Professional Module Development. Now, we actually offer this course in two versions, a full version and a light version. The full version meets twice a week for 15 weeks, and the light version meets twice a week for nine weeks. We go deep into services and dependency injection, as well as lots of automated tests, plugins, and several of Drupal Core's APIs. Class begins January 30th. Learn more at drupaleasy.com PMD. Welcome, Kevin Quillen, to the Drupal Easy Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good, good, good. We wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about sort of a recent book. It's been out for almost a year now, I guess, February of 2023, called Drupal 10 Development Cookbook that you co-wrote with Matt Glomman. This is just one of those things that's been on my radar for a while, and I wanted to talk to you about it. And now I finally have the opportunity. So thanks for coming on, and thanks for making the time. So. I know that you have been on Drupal.org for over 15 years. So you're a, you're a longtime Drupaler like myself, and you're quite the prolific contributor in all areas. I'll have a link to your profile in the show notes as well. You're also, let's see, I have principal developer slash principal Drupal practice lead at Valir. Did I say Valir correctly? Yes, you're correct. All right, fantastic. You want to tell us about you know, Valir and what you do for Valir a little bit more, maybe? Sure. Uh, Valir is a full-service digital, digital agency. We're based out of Boston, Massachusetts. We primarily deal with nonprofits, higher ed, healthcare industry, and various other clients. I've been with them almost almost 10 years now. Wow. But as you mentioned, I've been working with Drupal since version 5, a very long time now. How'd you get into Drupal in the first place? Like, what's your, like, what's your Drupal origin story? That's, you know, another long conversation. I'll try to keep it, keep it short, but way, way back in the day in a, in a different lifetime, we were building in the mid two thousands proprietary software with cold fusion. If anyone remembers the language cold fusion, we had a CMS and a commerce application and a CRM application. And over time, it just got harder and harder to, you know, maintain the code base with a small amount of staff as we gained, gain more clients and gain more projects and trying to do and develop the product as, as supporting at the same time was, was really difficult. And I think it was like 2006, maybe open source platforms were kind of a new, a new thing. It wasn't really a known thing like it is today. So I, I think there was one weekend where I had to sit down and build a feature that was, it's been common in systems like Drupal for, for many years. Um, and I just kind of took a look out there and thought, you know, has anybody solved this problem before? I think we were really trying to build a menu or something very, very trivial and started thinking, well, what if we just shifted our efforts to an established platform that has a community, again, a very new idea at the time, to take kind of the burden off of us from doing the same 
basically building the same feature and the same task on every single project that was hard to maintain. It was, it was just slightly different. So every single project you had to know, have context over the project and who worked on it and who developed it. And the code was just different. It was, it was crazy. So we spent a month kind of trialing the idea of, can we build a site in Drupal? We didn't know anything about Drupal. We didn't know anything about PHP or the Linux hosting, et cetera, because it's all ColdFusion and, and Java. I made the transition, and one of our very first Drupal projects was for the Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, which is a, a local, well, at the time it was a local brewery here, and now they're very na- well known nationally. They were built on Drupal 5 and then quickly redone on Drupal 6 because the upgrade was very simple back then. And then at that point, we started just getting rid of ColdFusion very, very rapidly because the productivity gains in using an established system like Drupal were very, very clear. We didn't have to redo the, or, you know, someone had to come in and be an expert in a WYSIWYG to know how to implement that or how to implement content type. Like content types was basically the big selling point for me, seeing how easy it was with CCK and a system to go through and point and click and create your content model and add your fields was it in 2006 was mind blowing. And it's still a killer feature of, of Drupal today, how easy it is to do that without writing any code that just kickstarted the whole thing. I'm mean, have been inside of Drupal ever since. Yeah, your origin story is not all that different from mine and not all that different from a lot of other folks that we've interviewed on the podcast over the years that kind of joined the community in the Drupal 4, Drupal 5, Drupal 6 days. It's just we were all, you know, building custom content management systems over and over and over again for our clients and until we had enough and, yeah. you know, eventually found Drupal. How did you find your way to writing a book? So I've been approached in the past by Pact Publishing over the years, and I never really had, I didn't have the time to kind of dedicate to that, but it was always something on my on my list of, of life goals to do, at least write a book. I certainly put out plenty of blog articles over the years that when they came to me, I think last year, somewhere in the summer, they asked if I wanted to participate in helping complete this uh, Drupal 10 book. And when I asked them who the co-author was and they said, Matt Glamour, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm 100%, I'm in. Matt's, of course, a legend in the community, and he, he puts out very, very well-written, very thoughtful pieces and, and great contribution work. So I wanted to be a, a part of that in any, any way that I could, and I thought that'd be a great first step. I wouldn't have to you know, write, produce an entire book. I can do the, just the half of it. be a, a good starting point for me to step into that, because the timeline was very tight, so I, I figured you know, I could probably do the required amount of content in the, in the dates they, they had given me, as opposed to writing the full, full thing by that point. So I said, I'll do it, and it was a, it was a great opportunity. What was the state of the book when you joined the project? Were just chapters missing or were you like, what was the... Yeah, so so Matt had, it's a continuation of the previous Drupal cookbooks, but of course a lot has changed since eight and even in some ways nine to, to produce this new book. So a majority of the chapters were there, but we had to redo some of the initial ones and then replace kind of the latter ones with all new stuff that's all new in Drupal 10 and some different topics. So he had, re, he had rewritten and updated all, uh, all the parts for the beginning of the book. Uh, on those initial topics and refreshed it for 10. And then I stepped in to finish the last half of the book. I think he, there were some obligations going on. That's why I came in to kind of help help out there so that the chapters were already pre-selected. Fortunately, the chapters that I was doing, it's something we do like on every single project. So that was another benefit to me of you know, first time writing a book. It happened to be content. I was very, very, very well familiar with and able to produce that pretty quickly. Yeah, I found, you know, having that confidence when you're when you're just getting something rolling is super important. How about the uh, the pattern of the book is, you know, it's not like, I don't want to say it's not like a lot of other programming books, but it's definitely, it has an overriding structure. Like every section has 
like cookbook style structure of, you know, getting ready. How do you actually do it? How does it work? You know, then going a little bit deeper. I think that was in uh, the, uh, there's a, a there's more section. Did you find it difficult to kind of adhere to that structure? Maybe, maybe at first uh, it was a different kind of a different uh, approach to writing for me. I don't of course write, you know, articles, blog articles like that for, for Lear or my own site. And for me growing up, I've been around the block long enough that the gold standard in any technical manual for me was always the O'Reilly programming books on, on any subject that he ever produced. So that was my mindset going into it. And I had to kind of, you know, take a couple steps back and it find ways of fitting in the things you want to say into this framework, which is consistent through the book. So well, I had to take a step back and say, okay, for these chapters, I need to think back through actual projects that we have done and think of a problem scenario and then set that up for the reader. Because the other thing that I've learned from all those technical books of the past is, for, for me anyway, I learned better when the example is a real world problem, a scenario to attack and not just kind of a generic, generic scenario. So the chapters on migration or the, especially the chapters about approaching testing or multilingual content, putting that, putting that kind of real world framing on it, I think tracks better with people who may be encountering the same things on their projects. So what, one thing I thought was interesting, the word development is right in the title, but mm -hmm. this isn't a book that's only for developers by any stretch. Because there's a lot of site building, there's a lot of contributed module configuration stuff in there. Was that was that the plan all along? Um, is is the title just you know Drupal development? You know, within the community, I think a lot of times when folks say that they're a developer, they're talking about coding as opposed to site building. So, kind of, what was the plan regarding contributed modules, you know, specifically? Yeah, I. I think there was kind of a multifaceted approach here. I think one was the to be inclusive of people who, and also encouraging like people to say they're a developer. They may not be, you know, it depends on their definition, right? So if people think developer, they may think they're a complete expert in all things coding. And that's when they see that, they get a little apprehensive to even approaching either reading material or tutorials if they think it's going to be a heavy amount of coding. So by starting off the book and i think it just continues all the way through by taking like a site builder aspect to it up front and then say okay if you wanted to tinker with it a little bit here are some code examples to do that just to show how easy it is to even on the advanced topics how to kind of jump in and make modifications or alterations and once because this was true for me way back in drupal 5 once you've done that first little bit of modification whether it's a form alter or adding a menu item hook then your confidence starts to build and the more confidence you have in you know taking a hold of code and just jumping in and doing it for people who aren't wouldn't call themselves a developer they suddenly get on the track to being one and then the book definitely applies to people across the entire spectrum whether you're new to any of this or you're a seasoned expert in, in drupal development i think there's something to learn there for everyone yeah I, that's one thing i definitely wanted to to you know bring to the forefront that this is definitely not a book just for coders there's a lot of really good information on you know, various contributed modules. And I don't want to even, like, it's almost like a, a, a little bit of an eclectic list of contributed modules. You know, there's the, the four I wrote down are workspaces, views, obviously views, layout builder core module as well. But then the charts module, I, I was kind of surprised to see examples on that in there. But all that being said, there's still plenty of code in this book. I mean, there's, there's a whole chapter. I think it's a whole chapter. Maybe it's a whole section with multiple chapters on automated testing. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the, the it's kind of hard to avoid code when you're talking about automated testing, but that, that was a chapter I think I really wanted to get in that book because for me, going back through 
not even just various Drupal books, but other technical books in general, is very, very hard to find information on automated testing. And that just, most books will say, here's how you do it. But there's no like, the the intuition and the why and kind of the what they would call the art of testing is kind of lacking there. So when I, and this was true for me many years ago, where it's like, I would write tests, but I don't know how. But it's like, well, I can show you how, but it doesn't give you that kind of the insight of when knowing when to do it and how to do it and what makes kind of a valuable test. So we tried to include, that's the one area of the book that kind of breaks that framework that we talked about about, because I, I really wanted to get those, I think it's two or three pages into that chapter, like explaining why you want to do this and what each kind of test is to help folks understand where it's applicable and where you'd want to use that. So that was very important for me to get in there because I can remember back when before I did any of it, it was really hard to find any information other than the standard books. That's I think there's like a Kent Beck book on test-driven development and a couple other books that can tell you the methodology, but then you want to apply that to put it in like a Drupal sense of like within the CMS, what kind of tests am I looking at? How can I write a test? And then I think the chapter takes you through like the unit test, which is your very basic, very small code only test all the way through a functional browser test. I think we're using, um, starting with vanilla code and working into a field formatter and I think a migration plugin to kind of demonstrate how it all works. So it's kind of rolls it up into a full example by the end of the chapter. But that was for me very important to get in there because it's a very critical aspect of talking about people in the path to development, becoming, you know, getting better at what you do. And again, when you put tests against the work that you've done and they pass, that builds the internal confidence too. You know right. for a fact that your code is working instead of kind of guessing and saying, well, you know, it was working yesterday, maybe not today. And that just, there's so many hours wasted there for people trying to debug. What, what is the problem? Is it the problem? Is it my code? Is it contributed code? Is it someone else's code? It just eliminates all that fuss. So that was a very important thing for me to add to the book. Yeah, I find it's really difficult to communicate when to write a test and which kind of test, you know, because all projects are going to have a timeline and a budget and very few projects are ever going to achieve anything close to hundred percent test coverage. Right. Yes. And it takes a special client to understand the value of the tests and to pay for those tests to be written. So understanding all of that and then being able to, you know, sell to clients that, Hey, it would make sense for us to spend a day and a half writing a functional test for this bit because it's especially tricky or a, a kernel test for this. And I was really impressed that, you know, the chapter includes uh, everything from unit tests all the way up through Nightwatch JS tests as well. So it's a pretty comprehensive chapter. I was pretty impressed by. Yeah, there's one big. Um, point. Oh, go ahead. I said it just you know we're from a, this same area of thought. But back in the day, it was if it wasn't a hundred percent test coverage, then you didn't have test coverage at all. That's for core, that's a very good principle to follow. But on the day-to-day -day projects that we do, my mantra is more like, well, what's the critical path here? What's what parts of the code are the most are mission critical to this application? The the superficial items we don't need to spend a ton of time like fretting over writing automated tests for. But if you're writing like single sign-on that has custom behaviors after there's someone is logged in, or you're working with cookies and then it was things that take QA personnel a very long time to do manually. And you have to do it every single deployment, every single regression. That's like when you start to see, okay, here's where the value lies for this test. And over here, maybe we don't need to do this right now. We can do this later, but absolutely want to do this up front because the more code you add over time, if it's the less tests you have, the harder it gets to go back through and figure out where the problems are. So in terms of, you know, you'll hear pushback from managerial uh, types that, oh, there's no budget for this. There's no hours for this, but 
I usually go rogue and say, okay, I'm going to pad my estimate a little bit because I know I'm going to come back and put this in just for my own sanity. And it's going to pay off later because if you don't do it and it breaks later, you're going to do it anyway. You're going to spend two or three times on a time trying to figure out what the problem is, what the remediation is versus having it up front. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I have one nitpick I have with this book. I was astounded that I did not see, and granted, I did not read every single word. I, I read some chapters and skimmed other chapters. You did not, well, I shouldn't say you, you and Matt did not use Drush Generate for any of the examples that, that I noticed. Was, and I'm just curious why. I mean, that for me, that's a go-to tool for, for writing modules or plugins or whatever. Right. I think if I could go back or if we go back, that's probably something we would add towards the end of the book. The, the, the structure of the chapters, we didn't really have a ton of flexibility in. We couldn't really add additional sections. But in, like from my perspective, initially, the goal in the way that I learned you know, how to transition into Drupal 8 was I, I did all the code. Like I, didn't, I knew Drush Generate existed. I knew Drupal Console existed, but I didn't want to kind of generate and then not understand how, like how a controller works or how the new entity definition codes work or how to define a field formatter. So if we could go back and add that to the end of the book, like, okay, now that you know all these things, here are tools that can accelerate you through once you understand how these things are constructed. It just, I just think we just ran out of time and didn't have enough enough leeway with the publisher. Like, we need to add this and add that and add the other because um, they were sticking to a schedule. But yeah, generally, especially in the age of like artificial intelligence and people generating code, my, my only uh, advice there is to, if you don't know it, try to do it hands-on first. And then once you have a good grasp of how it works, how it works, and it's all wired together, then come back through to Drush Generate and all the generational tools because you'll know by looking at it that it's correct or not. Yeah, I have a very similar spiel talking about Git. I'm like, don't worry about using a, a GUI with Git. Learn Git on the command line first, understand what it's doing, and then move on to a, a you know a, a pretty interface if you want. So there's an entire chapter on working with custom entities written in code. And this is kind of this is one of those things where when I'm working on a project with with some of our folks, some of our contractors, inevitably someone will say, "Oh, we should just make a custom, you know, a custom entity for that." And I'm for some reason I'm always the first one to push back on it because I feel like it's a it, there's a lot of code there, there's a lot of effort that goes into creating a custom entity in code. And I'm curious, just from it doesn't really have as much to do with the book, but you know, you you or and or Matt wrote a chapter on it, so. What are like some use cases that use that you've seen where it makes sense to do a custom entity in code? This is a, a very it's been a popular question since Drupal seven, I guess, when the entity API was was first introduced. Like automated testing, it's one of those things that it, it comes with experience. Like you'll you'll get to a point where you know when and where to do that. I think Drupal Commerce is a great example of that, where they have commerce orders, products payments and everything, everything lives as a, its own thing. But to, to make it, in my opinion, very, very simple, if you have data that is not considered publishable content, let's say like publication content, which I would consider right. nodes, we've had projects where we had to deal with kind of a pseudo reservation booking system for university where it showed different libraries across the campus and the different rooms that they had available. And it was all managed entirely in Drupal but we decided to treat those as custom entities. So, you know, one benefit there immediately is it doesn't, if you create it as a content type on a node, it's automatically opted into everything that nodes are, are opted into. So the, you have to remember to go back through and take it out of your sitemaps, take it out of your views, take it out of your search, take it out of 
you know, your role permissions. But if you do a custom entity, it's the other way around. It has to come back through and opt into everything that you want to do. So if you don't want, if you want to protect that data and keep it isolated away, custom entity is the way to go. Um, and I think Drupal Commerce is probably the best example of that, of why you'd want to do that. Um, the separation is great. And in, in Drupal 8, you know, 8, 9, and 10, that creating a custom entity doesn't remove anything from you. It still has the ability to be fieldable. Still, it can create bundles. It still can be used in views. So it's just it's just a matter of knowing exactly when and where um, those cases uh, arise. In my opinion, like we we faced it a couple of times this year, and we've ultimately opted to say, you know, this is this is a content type. It's like right online. This is a, this is a content type. But if it had a couple more requirements, we'd probably go a custom entity route for that. Knowing all the different pieces that that can happen when you just create you know one off one off content type for whatever reason. Yeah, I rarely go with custom entities just because the amount of code that's necessary can really balloon on that. So I've, I'm always looking for ways to avoid it. And honestly, it's a lot of times, like you said, it has to do with access control of data. So I end up doing using things like ECK, the Entity Construction Kit, or even paragraphs, which you know do not have a, a path to every you know paragraph entity. They always have to be embedded in something. So I was curious of just uh, to pick your brain on that a little bit. There's also chapters, entire chapters on working with uh, forms and, and and plugins, custom entity types I mentioned. So let me ask you uh, one more question about the book. And we, I just interviewed, and I don't know if that episode of the podcast is going to come out before or after this one, but uh, Luca Lusso, who wrote the uh, the Drupal 10 theming book recently. And I asked him a very similar question. So if imagine there's a developer who's comfortable with basic Drupal module development skills, hook form alter, you know, maybe a custom block plugin, something like that. If they're looking to up their, their Drupal development skills, their, their, their module development skills, I should say, what are the next two or three things that you think they should learn? Like where should they focus their time once they kind of know the absolute, you know, maybe they know routes and controllers and stuff as well. I think there's probably two paths there depending on the interests of that individual. One, of course, if you're trying to become, you know, up your skills across the board, trying to becoming a core contributor is a way to do that. Whether it's beginner, <laughs> beginner to expert is, is one way to get, because you get exposed to so many different kinds of problems that you wouldn't maybe not see on a, on a normal day-to-day project. That's a big first step, though. That's a big first. Uh, you know, you wouldn't recommend like you know maybe a a, a well used or well maintained contrib module. <laughs> that, that's the that's the second pass. So it, okay. it's clearly Got easier it. to also get started on the on the contributed side of things. Pick a pick a module that you like, or find one that may need a little bit of updates, and and, and start chipping in on on whatever whatever it needs. That's uh, the second path is the, is the one I chose way back when, because you just start working with code, you get to experience different. You get exposure to people in the community and working together with people and, and finding the best path forward for that. And when it all comes together and it works, it's it's a great feeling. Whether or not using it on a production project could just be something you do on the side. It's the the point is the more code that you write and the more or the more documentation that you write and more people that you work with, it's it's all experience in the end. You don't have to wait for the project to come in the door first before you start to work on it. See, that's uh, I, that's an answer I didn't expect. I, I I kind of expected that you would you would suggest like. You know, learn how to use PHP Stan, or learn the you know learn like how to create a custom form in Drupal or or something like that. But you went kind of the route of it's more almost a more holistic approach. Is just get involved somewhere that you can learn from existing code and and other folks in the community. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought I thought for someone who already had some initial um, 
grounding in Drupal. So I mean, yeah, like form alter, I, I call it the gateway drug into Drupal. That's always like the first easiest thing to do that you can see the result immediately. And then it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is really cool. And then you understand the hook system that everything behaves that way. And it's just a matter of which parts you want to modify and then kind of working from there. But sure, like, yeah, like just working with as much code as possible of any kind, any kind of functionality is, is just a great way to, to build your, your skills as a developer. No, I, I liked your answer though, because if, if you can get involved in an issue queue in, in a community project, you're going to learn, you're going to learn a lot, mm -hmm. right? There's going to be issues there that, you know, you're going to have to dig into and, you know, maybe they weren't written well. So you're going to have to try and figure out what you're talking about and maybe reproduce an error and you're, you're going to be learning no matter what. So basically exposing yourself to things you don't, whether it's uh, Drupal or PHP or not, just to get, just get involved in different technologies. Yeah. Like I, I like to <laughs> dabble in my limited free time and, and go and rust and try to contribute to DDEB and just different projects to just try to have either a voice or impact on those, those different things and, and learn at the same time. So you do reach a point where you, you, you can't really go too much, too farther. You, be, you hit that kind of plateau and it's time to look around at different technologies. And then even sometimes you can find ideas and skills that you didn't know about in those different platforms and then bring them back into Drupal, which I think we've seen with eight, nine and 10. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Drush Generate was something that if you had more time, you might want to sneak, mm -hmm. go back in time and sneak stuff in. Was there anything else that any other topics that, you know, were kind of on the radar that you didn't have time to get in? Oh, there's, there's two. The, for, so for the testing chapter, I wanted to do like another, I could do another 20 or 30 pages with Drupal test traits as like the, the icing on the cake of, okay. All right. I don't, if people haven't used it, it's, it's a way to do functional browser testing using the existing database. You don't have to like kind of scaffold out right. all the mock data and all the modules. It, it uses the database in place to run a test. It's was a, a lifesaver for me on a project last year where it was a real crunch and I didn't, ha I didn't have time to go through and like, I need, I needed tests, but I didn't have time to go through and scaffold out the, the functional browser requirements because it's a pretty hefty a site, but uh, you put Drupal test traits in, it's the same process. It uses Selenium and Chrome. It's a headless browser uh, orchestrator, and it goes through the tests just uh, like it would for a normal functional test. That That is a, it's a phenomenal tool. I think, uh, you know, Mo Schweitzman, of course, is another legend in the community behind that and behind Drush and other great projects. That's, I could write so much about that because it's, it's another, I think, <laughs> if, if I had to do it again, because it's like, if you don't understand testing, if you pick that first and you set it up, it's kind of easier to see what's happening because you don't have to deal with the scaffolding code part of right. writing tests, which a lot of people get hung up on. You can just kind of get in and start poking around and say, oh, I can use PHP to control browser. Yeah, that could be 80% of your test. Yeah. Yeah. End to end test. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is if we could do it again, knowing what I know now, I do an entire chapter on the uh, ECA module, the event condition uh, action module okay. at the probably near the end to like to bring it all together because it incorporates everything um, that you may have done as a developer or maybe as a site builder for plugins and integrations and actions and rules and everything like that. Yeah, that's great that you mentioned that. That's, it's, it, you know, I've, it's, a, it's a great module. It's, you know, I, I'm definitely using it on most of, of my site builds these days. All right, so uh, let's switch gears real quick. I have a couple minutes left with you. You are uh, one of the maintainers, the main maintainer of the OpenAI chat GPT integration module, correct? Yes. So for, you know, for those listeners who haven't played with it yet, it basically integrates pretty well with Drupal on an entity add edit pages where it can suggest tags or summary or title. So what's, 
I don't know if you've been working on it lately, but kind of what's the, you know, as fast as AI is moving these days, do you have any plans for that module evolving in the, in the short term? Yeah, we we recently gave a demonstration of this module at Aquian Engage two weeks ago up in Boston. And the response to this module has been well beyond what I ever expected. It's really just started as, I was just curious of like, you know, what is what is ChatGPT and is there anything to this and what would it look like in a CMS? And it kind of just, it took off out of nowhere. So AI is moving so fast. It's probably faster than the JavaScript ecosystem, if I can make a tiny joke there. <laughs> it's, it's really, really difficult to keep up with what's changing every day and the startups that are coming and going to know where it has legs, right? So we, we've tried to focus just from, you know, from a content manager's perspective in Drupal, like where would that benefit them the most? And if you're familiar with the module, everyone loves the CK editor integration because it's like plugged right in right. and kind of the, maybe the best demonstration of, oh, look, there's stuff happening on the screen and I can go to a field and say, you know, is, what's the SEO version of this, a better SEO version of this, or does this, is this too graphic for different audiences? Or it'll tell you all kinds of things that really just started as a proof of concept that people are using in production today. But earlier this month, we, we released the final, final two, final three endpoints really of speech to text. You can upload an audio file or a video and it'll give you a transcript of that, that file. It'll also transcribe that file into different, I believe different languages if you wanted to. Yeah. And the text, text to speech obviously is, is the reverse. You can upload a, a text document. It will give you an audio file spoken back by AI of that of that content. And then we integrated the Dolly endpoint, which is the image generation endpoint with OpenAI as a screen in Drupal. And then once I got to that point, we also gave me the opportunity to create like an internal API wrapper on top of the OpenAI client wrapper. And then we could step back and we made an integration with ECA. That was the last release we did. So yeah, that's the one I actually wanted to bring up. Yeah. <laughs> so you can go through and create an ECA model. And then there's a couple of actions in there for interacting with ChatGPT, like the completions, the chats, the text-to-speech and speech-to-text. And we're working on the moderation, content moderation as a condition, which I'm going back and forth with uh, Jurgen on how to best do that and implement other things as we go along. So that that's kind of like how we're going to, or how I would see we democratize access to AI. Because right now, the only, the only people that can really inter, uh, interface with it are developers or if you use the ChatGPT site. But once it's in ECA, then we don't have to write all the code to facilitate the myriad of ways people would want to integrate AI with this. We just give them the power to create the workflow themselves. As long as the API wrapper works great, then it's kind of you know, the sky's the limit. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, we could do, we could do a whole podcast episode on that, but I did, I didn't want to let that go before, <laughs> before I let you go. So I do appreciate the update on that. So Kevin, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. I hope everyone uh, has a chance to check out the Drupal 10 development cookbook. The link will be in the show notes and uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Drupal Easy Podcast. Don't forget to check out all of our long-form Drupal training courses at DrupalEasy.com and stay tuned for the next episode of the Drupal Easy Podcast. See ya!